Good morning, Reach Montreal. It's good to be here. Honestly, it's an honor um, to be speaking in front of you. Um, I'll be honest, I never thought when I walked through these doors that I'd be standing here uh, being able to proclaim God's word. So that's a miracle in itself. And uh, I was thinking about it this morning, actually. I remember when I was a kid and I was about five years old. And my grandfather, who was a reverend, he, he'd be downstairs in the basement and he'd be writing sermons. And then I would always go down with him in, in, the, in, the, in the room next door and be a typewriter. And I would tap away on that typewriter. And uh, my grandfather would be like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm writing a sermon. And, uh, you know, like my grandfather, who's 90 right now, like one of his uh, prayers were always that I, that I would become a minister you know, of the gospel and be a preacher, uh, which is kind of funny today. So um, uh, it's kind of awesome that I can do that today. So we're actually going to, we're going to continue uh, the series on stories that Jesus told. Uh, and we're going to be um, in the gospel of Luke chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I'm going to read the entirety of the uh, chapter and then we're going to dissect each part. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered in sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in, in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in, in anguish. And besides all this, between us, we have a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may, you may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Oof. It's pretty heavy, huh? That's a good one to start with. <laughs> I'm just going to open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would use me as your vessel that I'd be able to proclaim the full counsel of the Lord and uh, that we'd make much of you and that we would draw um, the lesson that you're trying to uh, teach us. And we ask these things in your precious name. Amen. All right. So as we continue this series, we notice that Jesus is an excellent storyteller. And if we've grasped anything from this series is that Jesus takes the everyday, the ordinary the mundane, um, such as 
soil and fields and trees and workers and wages, the rich, the poor, things that they saw every day that we see every day today. But he uses it to apply a lesson. Now to lay a little bit of groundwork, a little bit like a, a foundation, um, in chapter, in this chapter, in verse 14, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. Okay? And he's doing that in the midst of bystanders, and he's doing it also in front of his disciples. So we know that Jesus is out to correct lovingly. Now let's go into the text here. The text begins with a tale of a rich and a poor man. And the rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen. Signify that he was a man of great wealth. The color purple symbolized royalty, wealth, and status. And the rich man would feast daily sumptuously. Sumptuously meaning luxuriously, at great expense, costly. He was living it up. He had it made. When we move to the second person in this story, Lazarus, now we notice that this is actually the first time that Jesus names his character. In all the parables, if we look, they're vague. They're the rich man. There was a man that walked. This is the first time that we actually see that Jesus names his character. And a little bit later on, we're going to tackle that and explain that, perhaps why. Now some have speculated that this story was an actual incident that took place. That it's not just an imaginary story. However, due to familiar patterns and illustrative introductions, it is believed that this is a parable. It's an imaginary tale that Jesus himself invented, as he did so many other stories in the past, to make a spiritual point. Now back to the second character in this story. Lazarus was poor, covered in sores, and he would lay at the gate of the rich man whose only wish was for the scraps and crumbs to fall from the table that he may eat of them. Now, I'm a father of three. There is, during breakfast, lunch, and dinner, there is a lot of food that falls on the floor from my children. And I can be very honest with you, there's nothing appetizing about anything that falls on the floor. I'm talking about soggy french fries, uh, nasty vegetables, half-eaten meat, crusty bread. I mean, it's all, it's there. Anyways, there's nothing, nothing at all appealing. However, Lazarus is longing for this. He's so hungry, he doesn't, it, it doesn't even bother him. He's, it's what he desires. In verse 21, there is a reference that the dogs are licking Lazarus's sores. Now, Dogs were considered to be filthy, worthless, wild scavengers. Yet they are the only ones that are showing compassion to Lazarus. Lazarus has lived a very contrary and polar life to the rich man. Very, very different. He's lived a life full of poverty, pain, humiliation, discouragement, which I believe forced him to draw to his maker. 
And I think sometimes for us too, we need to apply that in our lives that sometimes, you know, we might be going through certain struggles, we might be going through certain issues, but maybe God has placed that for your own good, right? Maybe to lean in more into, into Christ at that point in those moments. And I, I believe here that that's what's happened, that, that some, some commentators have actually said that his poverty actually may have saved his life. And we sometimes don't look at it like that. And he would stand on the promise of scripture and that he would pray and that he would seek God's face. Now, last week, Pastor Dustin, he preached, or sorry, two weeks ago, he preached on um, the Good Samaritan. And um, he talked about how the priest and the, the Levite, how they failed to see, to feel, and to act. And yet again, we see another individual fail to do those things. He missed the mark. He didn't do anything. He just let Lazarus stay at his gate, never did anything to help him out. Now, just to explain something, the scene at the gate, this is something very uncharacteristic for a Jew. Now, let me expound on that. Let me explain that to you. As per Old Testament law, the laws of Leket, let me, I'm going to read this because Leket, Shikha, and Peah, which is gleanings, translated to gleanings, forgotten produce, and corners. There were to be no needy or poor amongst the Jews. Everyone was to be taken care of. And that comes directly from two portions of scripture. We'll actually see it on the screen. Uh, Leviticus 19, 9, 10. I hope it's up there. I'll read that out. If you're following Leviticus 19, 9 to 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your right field up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyards bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And also there was Deuteronomy 24, 19. And when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, for the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all your work of your hands. Though the text does not confirm this, the wealthy, well, they owned land, they owned farms, they owned vineyards. And I do not doubt that this rich man had crops. Yet we see a hungry Lazarus at the rich man's gate with nothing to gather. That may indicate that the rich man was not obedient to the instructions that we just read in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus. So not only do we have a rich, apathetic man that does nothing for the poor, but also a man of disobedience that is not following the law as a Jew. Now let's move on in the text to verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. 
So we learn here that both men died, that one is carried to Abraham's side, which is a representation of paradise or heaven, and the rich man is excluded from this utopia, from this bliss, from this perfect paradise, and instead was sent to a place of torment called Hades, which is the Greek word for the abode of the dead, or in Hebrew, they say Sheol. How the roles have reversed. Some have called this story actually the great reversal. And it's funny how God's uh, kingdom is an upside down kingdom. We've heard that many times preached here at church. Where the rich become poor and the poor become rich. And I'm reminded in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Lazarus, who was once covered in sores, hungry and leaning on the gate of a house, was now leaning on the patriarch Abraham, fully healthy, fully restored, and fully at peace. Now, just a side note, a lot of people do a lot of funny things with this scripture. Um, But nowhere in scripture do we read that people in hell can look into heaven and vice versa, let alone witness what's happening there. So we also see in the text that angels, they they carried Lazarus to Abraham's side, which is also something very figurative and poetic since we know that our bodies when we die go in the grave and that one day Christ will call us home and the dead in Christ will rise. So again, this is... The, 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 the meaning of this is, is to make a point, to be able to, like I said earlier on, Jesus is trying to explain something specific, not about the afterlife. Now, we move on in the text in verse 23. And in Hades being in tormented, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in in water and cool my tongue for I'm I'm in anguish in this flame. Interesting how in verse 24, the rich man is pleading and begging for something as simple as a drop of water and he gets no relief. And in the same way we saw Lazarus desiring something as simple as crumbs from the rich man's table and also with no success. The rich man received good things and he feasted luxuriously and is now experiencing an anguish that doesn't even compare to Lazarus's sores. At least Lazarus was shown compassion from the dogs regarding his sores, the rich man has received absolutely none. John MacArthur explains this well regarding the rich man's anguish. Let me read this for you. Christ pictured, Christ pictured Hades as a place where the unspeakable torment of hell had already begun. Among the miseries featured here are the unquenchable flames an accusing conscience 
fed by undying memories of lost opportunity and permanent irreversible separation from God and everything good. I think MacArthur makes a good point here about what true anguish is, and that's the permanent irreversible separation from God and all that is good. Moving on in the text, verse 27. And then he said, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if somebody goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if somebody should rise from the dead. Abraham in scripture, he represents, the, the, he represents faith in the promise. And here the father of faith is telling the rich man that his brothers have Moses and the prophets which basically represented the Old Testament scriptures. Sola Scriptura, the sufficiency of scripture to overcome their unbelief. That even a dead man will not convince one to repent and turn from their sins. I've always, I've always thought if the walking dead came to see me and tried to warn me of some tragic future, but surely I would listen, right? Like, I mean, come on, there's a dead person that I thought was dead is coming to me. Surely I'll listen. But let me, let me tell you what happens in scripture to dead men that walk and talk. John 12, 9, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on the account of him, but also to see Lazarus. Lazarus was one that was raised from the dead. Whom whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made a plan to put Lazarus to death as well, because on the account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. We'd cover it up. Somehow we'd make excuses. He didn't really die. Um, he was alive. Obviously there's a medical explanation for this. We, we would do whatever we can, and if we couldn't, we cover it up. Just kill him. That's what, that's what the Pharisees tried to do. The Pharisees wanted to kill him. They wanted to get rid of him. Miracles cannot fully convince you. Only the gospel can. As Romans says, the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. We find that in Romans 1.6. Why this parable? What is Jesus trying to tell his listeners and how can we respond to this? Three points that you can draw. Number one, repent. A call to bring all to repentance. The heart of God is and has always been to save sinners. To, to have hardened, callous hearts replaced and replace them with a heart of flesh. To seek and save the lost as Luke 19, 10 informs us. In the beginning of this chapter, Jesus is rebuking 
the Pharisees because of their love of money, their apathy, their self-indulgence. Jesus is warning the Pharisees, get away from those traditions, from your convictions, and repent. If you haven't picked up on it, the rich man and the five brothers in this story are the Pharisees. And Jesus is warning them that their love of money and the things of this earth that both moth and rust will destroy and will crush, and their love for everything but God is leading them down a path of eternal separation and torment. A place where there are no second chances. They have been separated from God by their sin, a large chasm which we see in this story. A place of disconnection from all that is pure and all that is good. Brothers and sisters, let us not so easily point the finger at the Pharisees and say, this is for them, this was for that time, this is not about me. Um, Jesus was rebuking them. But it's a time that we can self-examine, that we could test that we're in the faith. Are we not of the richest people on earth? Are we not a people that fall to pray to our possessions, to our money, to our belongings? So I would exhort you that as we learned last week in the parable with a tax collector, that if we are walking in that way, that we would come as he did with a posture of humility, a posture of reverence, a posture of repentance as we come to the Lord. And I'll just read that for you, what, what, what Pastor Justin preached on last week. But the tax collector standing far off wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he would beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. A verse I'd like to leave with you before we move on to our second point is found in 2 Peter 3.9. And it says, Nice. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is after your heart. God is looking for a contrite heart, a heart of repentance, that we can come to him just as the tax collector did. Point number two, remember. A call for all to remember his word and his promises. In our main text, Sorry about that. In our main text, the rich man is begging and pleading with Abraham to send Lazarus to his five brothers so that they wouldn't endure the same fate that he did. And on two occasions, Abraham answers him and he's like, well, he's got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And then again, we see later in the text, he says the same, same, same again. He says, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, 
Well, even the dead won't, won't convince them. Abraham is reminding the rich man that the dead won't even convince somebody to come to God. It is a powerful statement about the sufficiency of Scripture. That man's words, or a dead man's words, fall on deaf ears. But God's words can change the vilest of hearts. That the word of God illuminates our heart and helps us overcome our unbelief. Through the Old Testament, we see the scriptures pointing at a Messiah that would come, that would make all things right, that would bring salvation to his people. The Pharisees knew the scriptures. They actually knew them inside out. And just to break it down for you, there are three levels of education for a Jew. The first one was Bet-Sefer. Now this was from the ages of six to 12, where boys and girls would learn the Torah, which was the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Yes. Um, and um, to memorize it, that was the goal, to memorize the first five books. The second stage was Bet Midrash. And this was only for the, the best of the best, the elite students who managed to memorize the Torah. And from the ages of 13 to 15, they would dedicate themselves to the remainder of the scriptures, the Tanakh, which included the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. Then we move on to the final stage of a Jew's education, the Bet Talmud, which was from the ages of 15 to 30, so it was the longest. And if a student was selected by a rabbi, he would basically shadow a rabbi for that remainder of time. And the goal was to literally create a copy-paste of the rabbi. So this student would literally do everything the rabbi did, the way he slept, the way he ate, the way he studied, um, the way he prayed, his mannerisms, Everything that he did, it was basically to create a carbon copy of that rabbi. So it was um, a very extreme uh, discipleship, very extreme discipleship. Now, just to get some perspective here, the Torah is approximately 5,852 verses alone. And by the age of 12, Jewish kids, Jewish boys and girls, again, if they succeeded, were able to memorize this. So you can imagine how the Pharisees knew their scripture. And how sadly, them as the religious scholars of the time completely missed the fulfillment of scripture right before their eyes. And Jesus tells the Pharisees in John 5, 39, 40, you should be on the screen. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me, Jesus. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is telling them that both Moses and the prophets they spoke about him. 
And that if they would only abide in him and in his teachings, that they would have life. So let us remember his work, his promises. And let me leave you with two verses here as we move to our final point. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock, the truth. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And there's just one more passage I wanted to share. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. But everyone who abides in the teachings has both the Father and the Son. We find that in John, in 2 John 1.9. Now we'll move to the final point, rest. A call to rest in eternal security. My last and final point would be to rest in knowing that in Christ we are eternally secure. That we are in good hands. Lazarus lived a hard life with many valleys, trials, thorns, heartaches. Lazarus had a very hard life. But the Bible says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them. That's found in 2 Corinthians 4.17. And I think Lazarus knew that life and hardship was just something temporary. That life was just a vapor. That eternity was waiting for him. So he ran the race and he fought the good fight and he was welcomed into God's presence with well done, good and faithful servant. Ever so secure in Christ. A quote by one of my favorite preachers, uh, R.C. Sprawl, he says, we are secure not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because Jesus holds tightly to us. We are so secure in Christ. Now, do you remember when I mentioned Lazarus uh, was the only name that was um, given to any of the characters in the parables? Well, Lazarus is actually de derived from the name Eliezer. And Eliezer means God helps. And it's so beautiful that Jesus kind of plants that in there. And we just think it's just a name that he gives. But but that God's grace is being displayed in that. And he's already, he's already warning everybody that, God's going to help. He's going to be with Lazarus, which is something just so beautiful that we're safe and that we're secure and that we're, we're loved and that we're at rest in his everlasting arms. And as Matthew eleven twenty eight says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How many of you want rest? I want rest. But we can rest in knowing that we are eternally secure in Christ. How do we apply this? 
I'll tell you one thing. We don't come before the Lord as the Pharisee did from last week's parable. All the checklist, Lord, this is what I've done. This is the good in my life. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. Nailing it, Lord. That's not a way to start. But we do as the tax collector came with a repentant heart, with a contrite heart. Scripture tells us that God opposes the proud, but he gives mercy to the humble. And it is a time also for us to be able to examine ourselves, to test that we're truly in the faith. That we would remember the scriptures, that his word is a light onto our path, that it is truth, that it is life, and that the word itself points us to the good news of his son. And especially right now during Advent, the coming of the Messiah, how he came, lived the perfect life according to the law, died so that we can be reconciled to God. What a hope we have in Christ. And if you've tasted of the first two, of repentance and, and remembering the scriptures and knowing the scriptures, then you can rest in that. And you've put your faith in Christ, you know that you can rest eternally. And you know that you are eternally and forever saved. Rest in the perfect word of, in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Because he's gone to prepare a beautiful place for you. I'd like to pray with you as we conclude. Heavenly Father, you are so very good. Lord Jesus, I pray, God, that you would give us repentant hearts. That we'd be able to come with, uh, before you humbly. That we would be able to self-examine, Lord. That we'd be able to test that we truly are walking with you and in the faith. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for your word and that it points to you and that it spoke about you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your perfect work on the cross and that we are eternally secure. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be able to apply these things to our heart, to our lives. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.